You know, I said uh, uh, earlier that w- we did something here today when we uh, called our first hour a worship leader for the first time in 40 years. Isn't that remarkable? That's the first time in 40 years uh, we've, we've done that. And that's an incredible thing. And we, you might say in some respects, well, we, we, didn't, we didn't really see that coming. We had notice in advance, of course, but we didn't really see that coming. But what has transpired uh, is no surprise to God. And for our own lives, let me just say it to you this way. What you and I don't see is not a surprise to God. And what we don't know is not a surprise uh, to God. What is new to us is never new uh, to God. Because God's always working. He's always working around us. He's always working uh, behind the scenes. And we have for years adopted a saying, and the saying is the journey never ends. It really doesn't because from the time you arrive on this planet till the time you leave this planet, you and I are to be engaged in this journey that God has created for us and for our lives. And it has personal implications and it has corporate uh, implications. And the Bible teaches that both the people of God and the church of God, which really are one and the same, are, are to be constantly engaged in this journey. In fact, the writer of Hebrews uh, used a metaphor to describe this journey that we're on. He says, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us, listen, run with endurance the race that is set before us. In other words... We're in this journey, this race that God has put us in, and we're not running aimlessly. We're, we're running specifically toward a goal, and we're running because God has created you and I to play a unique part uh, in this race. In 1993, in the NCAA Division II Track and Field Championships, there were 128 runners in the field, and the race was a 6.2-mile run. They were following a course that had been marked out by the officials of the NCAA for the runners to follow. And uh, uh, toward the end of the race, one of the followers uh, in the middle of the group realized that something was wrong. His name was Mike uh, uh, DelCavo, and he was from Western State College in Colorado. And he saw that the main pack of runners had missed their turn. And so they were running down a a, a direction that had not been marked off. And he turned and made the right turn, and he begins to yell at the pack, this way, this way, this way. And they just ignored him, all with the exception of four runners. Four others came and followed him. At at any rate, the others stayed on the wrong course, uh, a short, uh, which made a shorter distance to the finish line. Uh, And in a widely criticized decision, the race officials decided to allow the abbreviated route to stand as the official course, which meant the guys that went on the right course ended up like 123rd uh, in the race when they actually ran the right course. You know, the world doesn't always reward us for staying on the right track, does it? Sometimes not literally or uh, figuratively. But the path that you and I follow is important to God. The journey that we're on. And one day the Bible says that we are going to appear before the Lord for an evaluation of the way we ran our race. Now it won't be an evaluation about about our entrance into heaven. You see, if you've trusted Christ, then then your entry into heaven is, is sure. 
but it will determine rewards and or the loss of rewards because that'll be determined by how we ran the race, the journey that God had given to us. And when we stand before the Lord, Jesus is not going to recognize shortcuts. He's not going to come back and change the rules and say, you took a different route, you shouldn't have took that route, but hey, no big deal. Jesus is not going to recognize shortcuts. Only those who have run the race by his guidebook, by his instruction, will be honored. And that's why the journey that we're on is so important. Now, over the past four decades of ministry, there's some things that, that I've learned about this journey that God has us on. And as a backdrop leading into the passage that I want us to look at this morning, I want to share some things with you that, that God has taught me through these, these years of ministry. One is that the journey with God is always for our good. It may not always be pleasant, but it's always for our good. I've learned that. I've learned it the hard way that sometimes I've expected the journey to be a journey of ease, and sometimes it's not that at all, but it's always for my good. Another thing I've learned is that the journey can be full of joy if you understand that God is in control of the journey. You see, if you, if you uh, don't understand that God really is in control, then life can become real miserable at times for you. But if you understand as a follower of Christ that he is in control, it actually can bring with it what the Bible calls a peace that passes understanding, an unusual kind of joy. That's why the Apostle Paul from a prison cell could say the joy of the Lord is our strength. I've also learned this, that the journey is rarely understood on the front side. We rarely, on the front of the journey of our life, we rarely say, oh, I understand what's going on. It's almost always understood by looking back. And that makes sense, doesn't it? You can look back at times and, uh, and you can say, oh, I, now I see what, what God was doing. Now I see how he was putting together the details. I, now I understand what he was doing. You rarely can do that on this side say, I know exactly what God is doing for my tomorrows or for the, 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 the journey ahead. It's almost always understood from the backside. I've also learned that the journey will take you places that you never could have imagined. God's journey will take you across pathways that you would have never walked before. God's journey will take you across people that you have never or never would have imagined. And you'll see how God uses other people and other places and other plans and path, uh, pathways to impact your life. I'll tell you, I've also learned this, that there are no little places in the journey. There are no little places to us. Think about this. God is the God of everywhere, right? If God is the God of everywhere, wherever you are, God is there. It doesn't matter if you're in the most obscure place in the world. If you think, well, God can't possibly know where I am or what's going on. God is the God of everywhere. The psalmist said, if I ascend to the highest heights, he is there. If I, if I descend to the lowest depths, he is there. God, there's no place that I can be that you are not. And that's true. There are no little places in our journey with God. And then there are no little people in our journey. Do you know that you are as important to the Lord Jesus Christ as the apostles or as any of the greatest Christians of notoriety or history, did you know you're that important to God, that you're just as important to God as all of those who uh, have come before you? And then I've discovered that there are no little plans in our journey with God. He has designed us on purpose 
and he has plans for our life, as our passage will talk about today. And so uh, on this day, our journey continues. Our, our journey, we, we've done something I haven't done in 40 years, but our journey continues. And so I want to remind you of three things today from our passage. If you've got your Bibles open to Jeremiah 29, I want to read our passage to you. And by the way, I know if you look at your outline, it says like point number one, point number two, point number one. The first point is so good, I decided I'm going to preach it twice. No, actually, that's a typo, and just you can, it should be number three. Okay, look at the text with me, if you will. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you, and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope, and then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me. When you seek me with all your heart, I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. Father, would you take now your word? Would you correct? Would you instruct? Would you enlighten us? Would you give us answers, Father, to uh, matters that we need to hear from you on. Father, would you use your word, the living word, to quicken our hearts and to change our lives today, this morning, right now. And Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight. Oh, God, my rock and my redeemer. And it is in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Now, I want to make right application of the principles in our passage this morning. And so we must understand the context from which this passage uh, emerges. We have to understand what's going on. This is addressed to, to the lives of God's people. And the setting is that Israel is about to become captives to the Babylonians. Now, here's the setting. So, so again, I want to be true to the text. Uh, Israel has been in rebellion. They have been living in rebellion. And God would send, God had sent them a prophet named Jeremiah. And Jeremiah would preach to them about their need to, to repent, that they had disobeyed God, they needed to repent, return to him. They were worshiping all kinds of pagan gods. And uh, so God said, look, I'm warning you. And if you don't, there are going to be consequences. And so Jeremiah comes against that background, and he begins to preach to them uh, to repent. He uh, preaches to them a message of turn back to God, and they, they just don't let In fact, he says to them, if you don't, this is what God's going to do, okay? You know what they do? Instead of saying, oh, that's pretty serious, they say, uh, Jeremiah, you've lost your mind. We've got some other prophet. We don't like your message, so we've selected some prophets who will tell us what we want to hear. Sounds like modern day, doesn't it? So we've selected some prophets that will tell us exactly what we want to hear, and we've chosen to, because they say what we want, that's what we're going to believe, and we're not going to believe the message that you're bringing to us. And Jeremiah is, is seeking the Lord. He's concerned about them. Finally, God has his belly full, if you will, and he says to Jeremiah, don't pray for them anymore. He said, stop praying for them. He said, I don't care how much you pray, Jeremiah, I'm not going to stay my hand against them because they are stiff-necked and they're rebellious and they won't listen. And so, consequently, 
they finally moved to the point after years of the prophet trying to warn them, they finally moved to a place where they're about to be taken captive by the Babylonians. And they're going to be, many of them are going to be relocated from Israel to, to Babylon. There will be some that remain, but they will still be servants to the, their captors, the Babylonians. And so this is on the eve of being taken into captivity when, this, uh, when uh, Jeremiah delivers this message from God to them. So uh, it's an interesting time to deliver a message of hope, isn't it? And here's what God does. God says, I'm going to give you something to hold on to because you're about to go into captivity for 70 years, but I want you to have hope on the front side. Isn't that even in their rebellion, God is acting in grace to them to say to them, I want you to know that I still know the plans I have for you, and there are plans for welfare, and there are plans to give you a future and a hope on the front side of going into captivity. And from that, I think we can derive at least three principles that we can all relate to. And that's what I want to share with you this morning. The first is simply this. God promised uh, them a visitation. There was a God-promised visitation. We see it in verse 11. He says, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise. Now, remember, this is on the front side of the 70 years. And at the front, he said, after 70 years, I'm going to visit you. Now, that doesn't mean... I'm going to come and see you and like we're going to go hang out and we're going to go have a cup of coffee together. I'm going to come and visit you. That's not what he's talking about uh, at all. In fact, listen to this. Though they were in captivity, God didn't abandon them. But here's what he's saying. At the end of this 70 years of discipline, what I'm going to do is I'm I'm going to come back and bring revival to you. I'm going to revive you. I'm going to revive the nation And this is a promise that he gave them that they could cling to and hold on to, uh, that he would restore them. But notice this, that God's timing is involved in the details of both of their place and his promises. God's timing is the important key here. You see, he said, I'm going to visit you again. I'm going to renew. I'm going to restore uh, down the road, but at my time, not at your time. So where they were actually was serving the purposes of God. How? Well, uh, it served the purpose of God to carry out discipline that would correct their walk. They They were being disciplined, but they weren't being deserted. And so where they were in Babylon actually was serving the purpose of God's discipline, but it was also serving the purpose of creating a new kind of devotion for God in their heart. After a while, while they were in captivity, they began to, or many of them, I should say, began to hunger uh, for God. And that's, you, you hear about in the New Testament, synagogues, the synagogues, the Jewish synagogues, those were teaching institutes. They were, they were complementary, you might say, to the temple. It's where the rabbinical schools were and the rabbis would teach the scripture. You know where those started? They started in captivity because they didn't have a temple. They didn't have a place. And so the synagogues became a place where they could come, those who wished to, and, and learn of the scriptures. And so one of the reasons God... Uh, had them where they were was to create a new kind of devotion. Another was to create a desperation. In captivity, finally, they began to realize how desperately they needed God. So they were serving the purpose of God by being there. Even in this new place where they were, God was working to shape and influence their lives. You know why? Because they're no little people. 
God could have easily said, eh, I'm tired of fooling with them. I'm just going to leave them alone. But even in the 70 years of captivity, God was still involved uh, in their life. Now, let me just say in a practical sense, there are times in your own life where God puts you in a place that's uncomfortable and it is perhaps a, a form of his discipline or he's trying to create a new devotion or, or desperation in you, but he's at work there. He hasn't deserted you. He's trying to shape you. He's trying to adjust your life. He's trying to influence you. Never underestimate what God is doing wherever you are because there are no little people. You say, well, he would give energy to somebody else, but he wouldn't to me. Of course he would. You're just as valuable to him as anybody else that's ever existed. And here's the principle that I want you to get. That God is always working, but he's always working according to his time. He's always working, but he's always working according to his time. And some of our problem is that God just doesn't work fast enough for us. But God's time is perfect, and he's always working. You know, everything is about timing, especially when it comes to God and his work. David Shannon Wooten, uh, in his book, um, Timing is Everything, he contrasts, he says, look, think about how, how important time is. He says, an oak tree takes 40 years to mature. Food prepared in a conventional oven takes much longer to prepare than it does in a microwave, right? And by the way, it's much better when it's pre uh, prepared in an oven, but it takes longer, right? Uh, you can build a barn in a day, but to build a beautiful house, it's going to take months. Time, you see, time. Um, how, about, how about something like a Ferrari automobile? You know, Ferraris are not built like Fords or Chevys or Toyotas. It can be built in a day because they're built on an assembly line. A Ferrari takes three weeks to build because they're handcrafted. They're hand-built. By the way, more common conventional vehicles can be purchased anywhere from about twenty dollars to $40,000 on the low end. But a Ferrari is going to cost you almost $192,000. Why? Because of the time that is involved. Time is important. And by the way, time is valuable, isn't it? Now, God promised them in time there would be a new visitation upon them. And that visitation would change the direction of their lives. But there was a journey that they would have to take before the visitation, before the revival would come on them. And personally, this principle, I think, reminds us that we are to seek God, to listen for God, and to hold on to His Word and patiently wait for His timing and His next move in our life. And you may be in that kind of place right now. It may not even be a matter of discipline, but you're having to wait, and God wants you to learn where you are, how to wait on Him, and not panic. See, that's why He tells them on the front side, I'm working, I've got a time clock, I'm working out this agenda. And it, He said, it's going to take 70 years. Now you say, well, I don't know how long. Well, it doesn't change your responsibility, and that is to say, I'm going to wait on God. I'm not going to move before God. I'm not going to get ahead of Him. The second thing I want you to notice this morning is God's personal declaration. 
The first is his promised visitation. But notice in verse 11, he talks about this declaration. It's personal. He said, for I know the plans I have for you. Now, God makes a declaration that he has some plans, and they're big plans for them. Now, when, when I say personal declaration, it is a personal, now stay with me, corporate declaration. In the Hebrew, the word you there is in the plural, meaning the group, meaning the people of God. He wasn't talking about the Babylonians. He wasn't talking about any other people. He was talking about the collective people of God. This personal, God has personal plans for the people of God. And that's true of like a church. We are the people of God. By the way, since Jesus Christ came and since we came to know Christ, guess what? We are now the people of God. We sometimes say, well, Israel's the people of God. Listen, if you're a believer, you're the people of God. And the principle that would hold true for the people of God there would certainly hold true for us. And that is that God is saying to them, I have these plans for you. They are big plans. There are no little plans with God. I read about a man who captured a couple of small uh, baby eagles. And he raised them um, very, with very great care, and he built this massive kind of cage, I guess you would say, where they could move around in pretty freely. But one day, after they had grown up pretty significantly, uh, some, somebody left the, the, the gate or the, the, uh, the door open to this, this cage, and the eagles escaped. And one of them flew off into the nearby woods and w- perched on a... Uh, a fairly low branch and the reason it did is it really couldn't fly very high do you know why it couldn't fly very high it couldn't fly very high because it had been so restricted in that cage that it was in that it had never fully learned how to use its wings in any kind of real altitude and so it when it did get out it flew relatively low it landed on a branch and by the way a hunter shot and killed it The other one that escaped, they found floating in a river. Evidently, it had either fallen in the river or it had uh, been knocked into the river. And because, again, it had not been able to cultivate its wings, no matter how large a bird it was, it wasn't able to fly out uh, with strong wings and get out of the current, and it drowned. Now, here's what I would tell you about that. Both of those eagles missed the plan for their lives because they were taken captive by man. They were created to live in high places. They were created to soar to great heights in the sky. But instead, they were doomed to live on the ground and to meet an early death. Why? Because they weren't living out the purpose for which they were created. Now, God created us both as individuals and as his church to live on a high level. And to carry out the great plans that he has for us. And that's why believing what he says about our life and trusting in his plan is so important in our lives and for our church. You know, uh, when I was on sabbatical, I studied again um, the seven churches in Revelation. And it's an interesting study. There's really only, most all of the churches are commended for some stuff. They did some stuff good. And most of them are also told, you better get this right or I'm going, to, uh, I'm going to bring consequences that will eventually lead to your ruin. There's only one church that was not um, uh, uh, reprimanded. 
And I've been there. I've been in, in uh, Asia Minor, that area where the seven churches of Revelation is. Southern Turkey is where it is, and I've been there. And do you know if you go there today, they really, there's not much left to see. There are markers. This is where the church, we believe, of Laodicea was. This is where the church of Ephesus was. Uh, these sorts of things. But you really isn't, there's some remains that they sort of kind of think maybe this is where the place was. And, and that doesn't mean like a huge building or something like that. But this is the, the, the area. There are just ruins of that period left there. But that's about it. Why does that happen? It happens when a church forgets that God has created it for a mission. And God has created it for a purpose. And God's plans are personal toward us individually and corporately together it's true of our lives as believers and it's true of our lives together as the church of God and in their case right here in our passage they were living under the discipline of God but they were also they were also being developed for the purpose of God and that's the encouraging news so yeah you can be under the discipline of God and yet God say I'm, I'm disciplining you I'm directing you I'm I'm doing a work in your life because I have something more for you and that's what's going on right here uh, and so here's the principle I would give you uh, for this second point the fact that God does not destroy us when we rebel is because he still has plans for us did you get that the fact that God doesn't destroy us when we're not obedient is because he still has plans for us think if he didn't have plans for us he would just as well destroy us right if he didn't have plans for us, look if you're alive God is not done with you all right so there may be times of discipline or difficulty in our life but that's because God has a destination for our lives God has a destination for our church. This new place was God's place for them. It wasn't the place that Israel, Babylon, uh, Babylon was God's place for them. It was a new place. It was a place of captivity. It wasn't the place that Israel would have chosen. You wouldn't have chosen it anyway. No, nobody says, ah, I think, think I'd like to go into captivity. Yeah, I could probably grow a lot if I went into captivity. Nobody does that. That's not the place we pick. It was the place God put them in, and it's the place that God picked for them. And because of that, it was God's place, even though they were subject to the Babylonians. Let me show you something else. Look at verse 14. Look at the last statement in verse 14. He says, I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you. The Babylonians thought that they were in charge. They weren't in charge. God had sent them. That God had simply used the Babylonians as an instrument of his correction in his own people's life. And he said, I sent you. They think they captured you, but I, they, they do nothing if I don't let Now, do you get that in your own life? Do you see how that works? Everything is under God's control. And so what we do is we have to surrender to his control because God can use anything, including adversaries, to put us in the place where he wants us so he can do in our lives, construct us, shape us the way he needs to, to accomplish the purpose for which he created us. And that's what's going on there. He said, I sent them there. Now listen, when you are then in God's place, you are always in the right place, even if it is an uncomfortable place. Does that make sense? When you're in the right place, 
you're always, when you're in God's place, you're always in the right place, even if that place is uncomfortable. And listen, and in that place, you can experience the will of God because there are no little places with God. God uses all the places, and he knows where we are, and he knows what he's doing there. And that leads to the last thing that I want to show you this morning, and that is verses 11 and 14, God's prophetic revelation. Notice he says, I have these plans for your welfare to give you a future and a hope. Now, remember when he says this, he says this on the front side of the 70 years of captivity. He says, I've got this plan for your welfare. Now, if you're going into bondage and captivity, you're probably not going, you know, this is cool because God has plans for us. But that's what he wanted them to understand. Look, I'm still at work. Even though you're going into a a foreign place, you're going into a new place, you're leaving your homeland, you're going into a difficult place, what he's saying to them is, I want you to know I haven't forsaken you. I haven't forgotten you. And even in this place, I'm at work on your behalf, and I will come later on, and I will revisit you. I will renew you. But there's some things that have to happen in your life. Sometimes that's why we are where we are. is because God is trying to do something new and fresh in our life. And it's God's assurance to his people that he was letting them know that his plans were not to harm them. See, you and I might have said, well, this is great. God is really taking it out on us. But what God is saying on the front end, while this is discipline, he is saying to them, in spite of that, I want you to know that I love you so much that I have, uh, I have a plans for you, great plans for you, plans to give you a future. This isn't the end. This is really uh, another step in the journey. The principle is this. God is way ahead of us. And because he is, we have to trust him right now with our future. God alone is our hope. That's what he wanted them to know. You're going into this captivity, but you're, you don't put your confidence in your circumstances. Don't let your circumstances destroy your confidence. You put your trust in God. Jesus Christ, for us, is our hope. He is our hope uh, uh, above all things. Right now, listen, don't put your trust in the government. Right now, don't put your trust in the economy. Right now, don't put your trust in health things. I'm not saying any of those things are bad. What I'm saying is, put your trust in Jesus Christ alone. I am the way, the truth, and the life. That's what uh, God wants us to learn to do. And that's one of the messages that he was sending to them is that they would have to trust God alone. So he tells them up front, here's the process. Here's what's going on. I want to encourage you in spite of what's about to happen in your life. God's message was prophetic. Something that they could look forward to. And he he revealed two things in this prophetic message. Number one, he spoke to them about their future restoration. He said, if you will seek me, you will find me. Now notice he says, if you seek me. Meaning, you don't have to, but if you seek me, you will uh, find me. I will be found by you. And then he says, did you notice, and I will restore your fortunes. It's prophetic. This is what you have to look forward to if you seek me. 
then you will find me. And so uh, he, he tells them, here's what's in the future, but you have a responsibility. The other thing he speaks of, not just their future restoration, he speaks of their future destination. And did you notice what he says? He says, and I will gather you from all nations where I have driven you. Again, the emphasis on God drove them there. The world would look and say, no, the, they, they scattered because they were running from persecution. Or they scattered because they didn't want to be taken captive. But the fact is, God was behind the scenes because God was up to something. And I want to tell you, God is always up to something. God is always working. He's always working on our behalf to move us to his uh, future destination designed for us. But let me give you something that's interesting and tragic about this story. That is that when God did free them, 70 years later, fast forward. This is the front side, right? When, that, when he did free them, 70 years later, when he freed them. Do you know that many of those who now were free to return to Israel refused to go back to Israel? Only a remnant went back. Many of the people that could return decided not to return. They stayed in Babylon you know what they had done? They had adjusted their lives to the paganism of their culture. And they were content to no longer seek God, to no longer return to the promises that he had given them that they would be restored and protected. Well, and, and as a result of that, guess what? They missed out on the will of God. They didn't take the next step in their journey. They just stayed put. We'll just stay in Babylon. You know, there are a lot of Christians today in their, in their relationship with God, and they've just decided to stay put. And they're missing out the, on the journey that God has called them to. My mentor used to say this. Uh, he would say, Ray, remember, you can't steal second base if your foot is still on first. You've got to get off first to steal second base. Y'all get it? I think there are a lot of Christians and they, God says, I, I, want you to, to, I want you to move here. And they say, but I, I can't because if I do, I'll have to step off of the base and the base is security for me. But God wants me there. But, and after a while, you just say, well, here I am. That might be good, but this is just where I am. And you miss the will of God. That's what happened right there. They just stayed in Babylon. They said, you know what? We've raised our families here. Uh, we've kind of adjusted to all the pagan gods and everything, and, and they lost their passion for the God. And so they just said, yeah, to go back to Israel will be a little risky. It wasn't risky at all because God had already given them promises. He'd already told them what would happen if they went back. But they said, we'll just kind of hang here. We'll keep our foot on, on first base. And, if, and, and, and if, if it all comes to us, that's one thing. Well, it never comes to us. And there are a lot of Christians that, that won't go further with God. They won't journey on with God. They won't, take the, the, they won't travel in the will of God. Why? Because they won't step off and say, okay, God, here's where, I go. uh, uh, here's where I'm going. And over the years, I've wondered, just how does that happen? What causes a person to say, i am just stay right where I am instead of going forward with God? I think there are several. One is that we get satisfied with a spiritual dysfunction in our life. Now listen carefully, we begin to see, spirit. and by the way, if you're not traveling with God, eventually you become spiritually dysfunctional. 
Because you are designed to take the journey, to run the race that the writer of Hebrew talked about. And I think a lot of people become content in their spiritual dysfunction. They don't even recognize it anymore. They're not even pulled anymore. They think their dysfunction spiritually is the norm. And so they miss out on the will of God. I think sometimes it's because we become content to live with just a little bit of God. I want a little bit of God, but I don't want the kind of of commitment to God that's going to change my behavior. Or uh, I don't want the kind of, uh, of, uh, of commitment to God that's going to require me Uh, to completely readjust some things in my life. And so I just want enough God, maybe that would get me into heaven, but I don't want anything more. I just want a little bit of God. And so they miss out on the, the journey that God has. Another reason is we settle for where we are and what we are. We just kind of say, well, this is, this is where I am, and this is who I am. And, you know, God knows that. God knows who I am. By the way, never blame God for who you are when you're not going forward with God. We sometimes, we stop traveling with God because of disobedience. There's just sin, and we don't want to deal with sin. And we'd rather hang on to our sin than deal with our sin so we can go forward uh, and travel with God. Or we stop looking to God's Word for instruction. We start saying, what does God say? This book, we're so fortunate we have it to look at, to examine our lives under. It's a spiritual microscope. And sometimes we just... We just miss the will of God because we're not in the Word of God. I talked to you last week about the growing biblical illiteracy. More articles I saw this week about that very subject that's happening in what's called the evangelical church. We don't know our Bibles. And if you don't know your Bible, you're going to have a hard time knowing the will of God. That's why, you know, I, I challenged you last week to read through the Bible in 2022. It's been a while since we've done that. We used to do that every other, uh, every other year. We'd read through the Bible. And I, we, I, I just had this strong sense that we need to do that again. And so uh, we have some one-year Bibles. You don't have to get those. You can go online. We have reading plans to get you through the Bible in a year, that sort of stuff. But I like these one-year Bibles because it's already broken down by the day, the, the, the chapters you need to read. We've got some of those. I just found out we ordered a bunch of them. They came in this week, and between Wednesday and today, I think there are only like 15 of them left out there, and we ordered, I, I guess, over 100 of them. They're already gone. We've had to order uh, 100 more, but they're out in the Welcome Center if you want them. But my point is not about go buy you a Bible, a one-year Bible. My point is this. Get in the Word of God. So you'll know and understand the will of God. We miss it because we stop, we stop looking in God's Word. We miss the will of God because we lose the, uh, the desire to, to worship Him and to know Him. One of the things I love about our worship experience, I, I don't know about you, but man, I, when I'm down there worshiping, I get excited about knowing God. I mean, and that's part of what the worship experience is about. It's about to ignite the fire in our heart to follow Christ. And I, that's why I love our team up here. And they, they help me. Uh, they help me. They ignite that fire. And that, but there are a lot of folks who have, have stopped longing for that desire, longing for the presence of God. And guess what? You miss the will of God. And then uh, we... we we let the fear and anxiety of the unknown overpower faith and faithfulness. We let, does that make, we let the fear of the unknown. Now, I want to tell you something. As you go through life, you're always going to be dealing with the unknown. 
Now, you can try to figure it out on your own, or you can trust an unknown future to a known God. And do you know what for the Christian traveling on that means? It means this. It means I can't see what's down there. Here's first base. I'm on first base. I need to go there, but I don't see. And a lot of Christians just say, I'm not moving because I don't see anything. And they never, uh, they never live out the, the purpose or in the will of God. But here's how you do it. Let me tell you how to do it. You don't have to see all the way down there. And my experience in my own life has been God rarely ever shows me what's way down here. You know what he does? He shows me enough light to take a step. And that's where I've got to leave here and I've got to take a step. And when I take this step, guess what? He'll show me some more light. And, I'll and sometimes he may show me enough to take a couple of steps. But the key is that I keep moving, and I move in the light that God reveals to me. And so in your life, what you're doing, instead of saying, God, if you will show me, I also will tell you this, I don't think we really want God to show us way down there. I think it'd scare most of us to death. But you can get down there by taking one step at a time, and you won't be terrified. Instead, you'll trust God, take a step, trust God. You'll take a step, trust God. He'll show you light. You walk in the light that he gives you. But if you won't do that, if you won't take a step, if you won't walk in the light, now listen. and by the way, this is faith expressed. Because you are saying, God, I trust you beyond my anxiety. I trust you beyond what I see in front of me. But if you don't, guess what happens? One day you wake up and you're like, you're like uh, the church at Laodicea. You remember the church at Laodicea? Jesus said to them, he said, I wish that you were either hot or cold, but you are lukewarm. And because you're lukewarm, I'm going to spit you out of my mind. In other words, you're useless to me. You're no good either way. And what happens if we don't learn to walk by faith not trying to figure it all out down here, but just right here today, and then the next step, the light he gives me. Guess what? One day we wake up, and we're Laodicean Christians. And we didn't intend to be, but because we did not journey, we did not travel with God, then we end up one day no different than the Laodiceans. We're neither hot nor cold. Let it never be said... Let it never be said of us that Ridgecrest used to be a great church. It used to be a great church, but it didn't journey on with God. And so what it became was just a, a building with people. It became a sanctuary without the presence of God. Let it never be said of us. I'm so thankful that this church through the years has stepped forward when it needed to step forward. And sometimes probably when you thought the preacher was crazy, what is he leading us to now? But you have stepped forward, and I'll tell you, God has been mighty good because this church has been willing to do that. But dear people, always we need to be reminded, we can't ever just say where we are is enough. You can't imagine if Jesus walked in this room today and said to you about your own spiritual life, Ooh, Bradley, don't go any further with me. You are far enough along. You can't imagine Jesus doing that, can you? You can't imagine Jesus walking in this room today and saying, Ridgecrest, y'all have done enough for the kingdom of God. Stop it. You can't imagine him doing that, can you? Because he wouldn't. 
That's why we continue the journey. That's why we say this journey doesn't end until we get to heaven. And I'm so thankful for you. I want to brag on you for just a moment. I'm so thankful that you have, every time God has called us to something, uh, you have, have stepped forward. Why? That's the key to traveling with God. Not saying we know what it, uh, it, it, it's all about. Not saying, well, you know, I trust the preacher. Well, I hope you do trust the preacher. But I trust Jesus. And I trust what Jesus is doing and continues to do. I want to tell you this morning as I close, God has great plans for your life. God has great plans for you. And I want to tell you, he has great plans for our church. Great plans for you. Great plans for our church. Don't you dare miss it. Don't you dare miss it. You say, well, how can I keep from it? You, you just say this. Say, Lord Jesus, I'm in. Wherever you lead, I will follow. I don't know. You know, things that we post and all, we become so accustomed to that we stop seeing them, you know? And I don't know if you've noticed, when you come in these back to the center doors here, above that is a scripture. Have y'all noticed that scripture? How many of you have noticed it? Yeah, I know the right answer is to say, yo, yeah, I saw it, I noticed it. I bet, though, a lot of times you forgot it. Forget it because, you know, it becomes familiar, and so familiar we kind of forget it. Do you know why that scripture's up there? It's a, it's, a, it's a promise God gave me several years ago about this church. And I don't have time to go in the store, and, I, and so I won't. I've preached it and talked about it years ago when God gave it to me. It was an, a very special moment. God didn't speak audibly, but I want to tell you something. It's about as close as I've had. It was a very powerful moment in which he spoke to me, and he spoke to me about this place, and it is a promise that I've clung to and I've held on to. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. He gave me that. Now, I don't know his timing on that. could be 70 years. I don't know his timing. I might be dead and gone before that promise become, bears fruit. But I want to tell you, God gave me that promise about this place, that the latter glory of this house will be greater than the former, and my peace will be there. Well, I sense his peace in this place. I sense God is up to something. I don't know if, that, if it's the fulfillment of that yet, but I know that's a promise that God has given to me. And, I don't ever, and when I get discouraged... I go back to that promise, the latter glory of this house. So when COVID hit and started running people uh, away from church, I went to that passage. But God, you said the latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former. And that's what I held on to when I was preaching to an empty audience here. That's what I held on to right there. But God, you said the latter glory shall be greater than the former. And it's been mighty good in this place for years. And yet God says, but I'm not finished, Ridgecrest. I'm not finished. There's more. You say, well, Pastor, what is the more? I don't know. I'm waiting to see too. I just know what he said. And I look forward to that. But I know that I know that I know that if you and I don't travel with God, that it won't become a latter glory. 
And so that's why you're, it's not just about this church, it's about the kingdom of God and the mission that he has assigned to you and to me. And so I just want to encourage you, travel on with God. Why? Because there are no little people. There are no little places and there are no little plans. All of us are part of this magnificent, cosmic, eternal purpose and plan of God. And that's why when we give an invitation like we're about to do, there's no coercion there. Jesus invites you to travel with him. He doesn't force you. He, he won't do it. He just invites you. The invitation is an opportunity for us. And if we reject it, God, in heaven, God doesn't wring his hands together and say, what am I going to do? They rejected it. God just says, we're going on. It's their loss if they reject my invitation. Go out. You remember the parable, go into the highways and the hedges? He, he, Jesus invited some people to come to a dinner, and they didn't show. And he said, well, then go out and, and compel them that my house may be full. You know what he was talking about? He was talking about, look, whosoever wants to follow has an open invitation. Who, whoever, highways, hedges, there are those who understand it who are invited, but they reject the invitation. Don't be one of those who rejects the invitation to travel forward with God. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the invitation that we have. And thank you, Father. Thank you for this church, Father, that is, has traveled in so many ways over the years. And we've seen your blessing upon us, Lord, individually and corporately. And we thank you. We can never thank you enough. Help us to continue the journey knowing that there are no little people and no little places and no little plans. It's all big stuff uh, for the kingdom and in the kingdom. And we get to be a part of it. We thank you for that, Lord. Now, I pray for any that are, are listening today on live stream or television right here in this live audience that have never begun the journey, that is, by trusting Christ as their Savior. Would you help them even now, God, to call on your Son, Jesus, to become their Savior? You've said in your word, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And I pray right now for those watching, those in this building that aren't sure that right now they would call on you. They would say, Lord Jesus, I invite you to come into my life to be my Savior. Forgive me of my sins and give me new life. I receive you. Lord, for some who have just become spiritually lethargic, would you cause them to say yes to you? God, I want to travel again. I want to travel on the journey you've created me for. Right now, cause them to cry out to you and say, God, I'm back in. I'll follow you whenever, whatever. I'll trust you one step at a time. As you give light, I'll walk in that light. Father, thank you for your incredible patience with us. But Father, now move us, continue to move us forward. We love you and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand with me for our invitation? I'll be here at the front and like always, staff members will be on the aisles and I want to invite you to slip out in the balcony or the ground floor. You come, make your way down front. What decision do you need to make? Maybe you just want to come and, and pray around this altar. Maybe you just want to come and kneel and say, Jesus, I'm in. Maybe you're praying for someone. Maybe there's a decision. Would you come and fill the altar with your, with your knees bent before God? Pray for our church. God, help us to continue the journey. We don't want to miss, God, what you have.
you trusted Christ as your Savior, would you come and say, Pastor, I prayed that prayer, or I need to pray that prayer. I need a church home. I want to join Ridgecrest, whatever it may be. As we sing right now, would you slip out? Would you come on?